Our text for this morning is Colossians 1, verses 24 through 29. And I'm going to go ahead and read that for us here. Colossians 1, verses 24 and 29. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Well, my hope is to get through all of those verses this morning, but before we do that, just to sort of take this passage and set it in the context for you, a little bit of review. If you remember, um, in the three-part outline that I've put together for Colossians, we're currently in the second part of Colossians. And that second part is the knowledge of Christ. And where Paul, to this young church in Colossae, is writing and he is explaining to them the person and the work of Christ. And you remember a few weeks ago in verse 15, when we were dealing with verses 15 and 16, he was saying things like, Jesus is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of creation. He's explaining who Jesus is, that he's worthy of all the honor and glory of a firstborn, that Jesus made all things and that in him all things hold together. I mean, these are major, major statements. We spent a whole Sunday school session looking at the one claim that in him all things hold together. There's so much stuff there that we can unpack and try to understand. And then last week we were dealing with um, Paul explaining how the Colossians, before becoming Christians, before being saved, were hostile in their minds to the things of God. That they were in their depravity, they, they were suppressing the knowledge of God, and that now as believers, they've been reconciled to God. And so Paul then made a transition, as we saw last week, from sort of talking more highly about Jesus, explaining who he is as the second person of the Trinity and being full of God and so on. And then he moves almost seamlessly into a discussion of redemption and reconciliation and talking about the work of Jesus and what he's done for the Colossians and, of course, by extension, for us too. And so now, here in verse 24, Paul is making another transition and he's starting to talk about some of the implications of reconciliation, some of the things that the Colossians ought to understand as he continues to expound upon uh, the knowledge of Jesus and what he's done for us. So what Paul's going to do in these two verses, the things we're going to talk about this morning, is first of all, he's going to deal with suffering. And he's going to do it in a way that if I was writing Colossians, I probably wouldn't have done it this way because I wouldn't have thought to do it this way. But Paul did, and it's really remarkable. So we'll look at what he has to say about suffering. And then he moves from suffering to talking about mystery and the mystery that's been revealed. And so we'll look at that then too. So firstly, verse 24 Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now, 
if you're not daydreaming, or if you were not daydreaming when I was reading that verse, something ought to have caught your attention. You notice what Paul's saying. He's saying that in his suffering, he is filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. That, if you don't understand it rightly, could sound like Paul is saying something like, the death of Christ is not sufficient in some way. That the death of Christ is not enough for our salvation. In fact, there's a lot of people who have come to this passage and have tried to make that claim. That what Paul is saying is that there's not enough in Christ's death in order for us to be saved. That there's something deficient in it. There's something lacking. In fact, this is what um, the Roman Catholic Church is going to try to teach. And not just Rome, but you've got other things like the New Perspective on Paul and other things that we'll talk about here in a second. But these people are going to come to a text like this and they're going to try to say, we need the death of Christ to be saved, for sure. No one's really going to, I mean, really no one's going to deny that you need the death of Christ to be saved. But what they're going to say is they're going to say, see, Paul here himself is saying that there is some kind of deficiency in the death of Christ. That is that it's not enough to be saved. You need something else added to it. And in this case, Paul is saying that he is adding suffering to the death of Christ, namely his own suffering. That is, in order to be saved, he not only needs Christ's death, but he needs to suffer to merit some extra stuff to add on to it so that he can be saved. And does that make sense? That's what some people will say when they're coming to this text. And just to give you an illustration of that, you've got, oh, this marker is getting a little old here, you've got the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. All right? And for the Roman Catholic Church, what they're going to teach is that human beings are born in original sin, which we would agree with, right? We would agree with original sin. We're born into sin because of Adam and Eve's fall in the garden. They plunged all of humanity into the depths of total depravity, right? That is what we would believe. Rome is going to say, okay, yes, everyone's born in sin. Everyone needs a savior. Everyone needs God's grace. We all need forgiveness to be saved. But what they'll also say is that when you bring a child in baptism, what's going to happen is when the child receives baptism, that child is cleansed of original sin. That child actually becomes morally perfect in the baptism. Original sin is removed completely, and now they're in a state of perfect grace. And what they'll say is that the only way the child can fall out of that perfect grace as a result of baptism is if the child commits sin. And Rome distinguishes between what's called venial sin and mortal sin. Venial sin and mortal sin. Venial sin over here for Rome is sin that is not powerful enough to destroy your state of grace. Right? It's like a little white lie or something. Just a little sin that doesn't really count. Whereas mortal sin, on the other hand, this is sin that is powerful enough. It's bad enough to destroy the state of grace that you received in baptism. So you see what's going on? Now, uh, Luther and the Reformation said, no, this distinction is, is whacked out. We don't make a distinction like this. All sin is mortal sin. There's no such thing as a sin that is not good enough to destroy your state of grace. Right? All sin is. But Rome says, all right, if a child is baptized... They receive grace, they're made morally perfect, they commit mortal sin, boom, they fall out of grace. 
they lose their salvation and now they're in a state where they are worthy of damnation for committing a mortal sin. They've made shipwreck of their souls. Now what are they going to do about it? What, what can that child or that adult do when they've fallen out of the state of grace? Well, what they need to do, according to Rome, is they need to perform the sacrament of penance. You ever heard of the sacrament of penance before? Yeah, I'm sure you all have at some point, if you have any familiarity with Roman Catholic theology. Yeah, you need to perform the sacrament of penance in order to compensate for the mortal sin that you have committed, that has pulled you out of salvation. And in penance, there are essentially four parts. First of all, you have contrition. And contrition is where you uh, have to actually feel sorry for the sin that you've committed and you feel sorry that you've offended God. The second part is confession. This is what you see in movies all the time if you've never seen it in real life, right? where the people are confessing their sins to the priest. They're confessing the mortal sin that they've committed after they have expressed the fact that they're truly sorry for it. And then the third section is the one that I want to sort of focus on here, and that is called the works of satisfaction. Almost ran out of room there. The works of satisfaction. Now, here's what this is. After you've confessed your sins to the priest, what the priest's job is to do then is he assigns to you works that you have to do to both show that you are really truly sorry for your sin in a sort of outward way. But secondly, what these works of satisfaction accomplish is they are actually meritorious. And what that means is these works compensate truly in the eyes of God for the mortal sin that you've committed. So these works are a kind of thing that needs to be added on to the work of Christ. You need to do these to get yourself back into a positive spiritual account, essentially. Because you're in the negative right now, committing mortal sin. You've got to get back in the positive. These works of satisfaction are going to do that. And then the fourth part of penance is the absolution, which is where the priest says, te absolvo, a nice Latin phrase that means I absolve you, or... To explain that more, it'd be, um, on behalf of God, I declare to you that your sins have been covered by your works of satisfaction, and God has now given you grace, and you're back into a state of salvation. And that essentially is the Christian life in Roman Catholicism, a constant series of falling in and out of grace, committing sin, coming back to penance, committing sin, coming back to penance, and so on, in and out of grace. It's not a, a secure place to be. There's no doctrine of the perseverance of the saints for Rome. Now, the reason why I'm bringing all this up and bringing it back here to Colossians is this. You can see with their idea of the works of satisfaction, which must be done to um, compensate for the sin you've committed, that notion can only exist in a theological world where Jesus' death is not sufficient. Where Jesus' death needs to be added to by us we need to add works onto it in order to get to that 100% this is very very serious in theology because we're talking about the gospel here this is no small thing that's why I'm spending time on this now you've got the Roman Catholic system and we're all well familiar with the fact that we don't believe this and we don't think this is what the Bible teaches we're good Presbyterians that way but there's another thing going on right now today and this is called the new perspective on Paul. 
Now, how many of you ever heard of the New Perspective on Paul? Okay, a few of you, not very many. Um, the New Perspective on Paul is a big deal right now in theology. And it's a big deal for this reason. It's taking a lot of churches and denominations by storm. And the New Perspective on Paul is really being propounded right now by a guy named N.T. Wright. He's kind of the main public face of this particular view. Um, and it's, I think it's kind of ironic his name is N.T. Wright because he gets the New Testament so wrong. <laughs> um, but anyway, in N.T. Wright, what he wants to do in his commentary on Romans, this is a quote. He says this, quote, In the final analysis, justification will be on the basis of performance. This is a guy who will call himself reformed. In the final analysis, justification will be on the basis of performance. Now, if he means by that performance of Christ, well, then we would say absolutely, right? Justification is on the basis of the work of Christ. But he doesn't mean that. He means our performance. In the final analysis, justification will be on the basis of our performance, our works, what we add on to the work of Christ. And N.T. Wright and our Roman Catholic people and all other people who want to argue for a kind of works justification are going to try to come to this text and they're going to try to say, see, look, Paul himself sees some kind of deficiency in the death of Christ. It is not 100% sufficient for salvation. We need to add stuff to it. So I'm just alerting you to these controversies out there. Now, as people who want to rightly understand the word... What do we make of this text? All right, what's it actually saying? Is Paul saying that the death of Christ is insufficient in some way? Well, let's go back to the text and look at it here. Verse 24, now. You see that word now, the very beginning of verse 24? That word is indicating a new section. All right, that's a word Paul likes to use to indicate like he's changing subject matter. So where previously he was talking about redemption and reconciliation and being saved, now he's making a transition. Now I rejoice in my sufferings. So he's moving to a new topic, the topic of suffering. That's important. It's the divide between what we were talking about last week and what we're starting with in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, the church. Now notice the fundamental error, I think, that Rome and the New Perspective are pulling out of this text. They're saying that what Paul's talking about here is Christ's death on the cross. Now, it's possible, but that's not what Paul's saying here, is it? He doesn't say that he's filling up what's lacking in Christ's death on the cross. He says he's filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. Namely, he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's suffering in general. And what he's saying is he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's sufferings for the sake of his body, that is the church. What Paul's doing here is, is a little bit um, vague in some ways, but it's very, um, if you study literature, it's brilliant what he's doing here. Paul's really, really um, astute at working with types and antitypes. So that's what he's doing here. So let me explain. What he's saying is that just because Jesus' physical body suffered on this earth does not mean that that is the end of all suffering for his spiritual body, namely the church. 
just because Jesus' physical body suffered on this earth does not mean that his spiritual body is not and will not continue to suffer for the rest of the time that it is on earth. And by spiritual body, we're talking about the church. And this is important because what he's trying to tell the Colossians is this, that they are going to suffer. You're going to suffer for the name of Christ, especially in this particular first century setting when the Roman Empire is soon going to begin enacting crazy persecution on the Christians. And the Colossians perhaps maybe would have been under the impression that because Jesus took on the suffering for all of their sin, therefore they wouldn't have to suffer in this world. And Paul's saying, no, that's not the case. There is still more suffering yet. The suffering of Christ is not the end. There is still suffering lacking that needs to take place. Preordained suffering that God has orchestrated before the foundation of the world that needs to happen. And this suffering will happen to you. And you need to be ready for it. And it's happening to me. And in my suffering, I am working through the preordained suffering that God has prescribed for me before the foundation of the world. There's a pre-amount of suffering that needs to take place for Christians. Some Christians face more suffering than others, depending on where they are in history and, and that sort of thing, like us. We don't suffer nearly as much as first century Christians did. But nonetheless, there's still a certain amount of suffering that needs to happen. Christ's suffering is the beginning, but there's still more to take place. That's what he's getting at here. That he, in his suffering, Paul, in his suffering, is filling up what is lacking in Christ's suffering for the sake of the body of the church, of which, this is verse 25, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me, or that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. And now Paul is connecting his suffering with the ministry of the word. That he is coming to these people in this letter, in this case, or to other people in person, and he is making God's word, namely the Old Testament here, is what he's really referring to, he's making that fully known to them. He's revealing to them a mystery. And this is connected to the suffering. This is why Paul is facing suffering the most, is because he's bringing the message of the gospel. And anytime the message of the gospel is being brought to people, suffering is going to happen. Sometimes it's just the suffering of people thinking badly about you. Other times it's the suffering of people trying to kill you. So he's bringing the word and making it fully known. And now Paul is moving from suffering into his topic of mystery. He's moving into why is this suffering happening? And what is my purpose? Why do I do this? Why do I, why do, I do this suffering? It's terrible. This is not fun. Why do I undergo this? He's going to tell us why. It's to make the word of God fully known. Verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. It's important to recognize that in the Bible, when Paul or when other authors are using the term mystery, when Paul and the other authors of the New Testament, and even in the Old Testament, are using the word mystery, they have in mind more of a technical understanding of the word than we do. Because, you know, when we use the word mystery today, we normally mean by mystery something that is hidden from our understanding or from our knowledge. If we're going to talk about, say, the doctrine of the Trinity, we usually mean by that that it, when we call it a mystery, 
that it is in some sense beyond our understanding and beyond our knowledge. We can't understand how all of the persons of the Trinity interrelate. Or maybe when we're talking about Christology and the hypostatic union, the divine nature and the human nature of Christ, there's so many things we don't really know about how they relate. We can say a lot of things about how they don't relate and silence a lot of heresies, but in some sense it's a mystery. It is hidden from our knowledge and understanding. That's how we use the term mystery. But when this term shows up in the New Testament, that's not exactly what Paul and the rest of the authors mean by it. And it's not what Daniel meant by it either. When you do a, what's called a biblical theological study of the biblical concept of mystery, what you actually find out is that mystery is not something that's hidden. But mystery is something that was hidden, but has now been revealed. And indeed, now has been fully revealed. Mystery is not something that is hidden. It's something that was hidden and has now come. And every time this word shows up, that's what it is. And so what's the mystery that Paul's talking about here? The mystery, he says, uh, verse 27, to them, as to the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The great mystery the purpose of why Paul is undergoing all of this suffering when it's not fun is to make known this mystery, to fully expound the word of God that contains this mystery, which is the mystery of Jesus and the hope of glory. You see this in the whole New Testament. This is what the apostles are doing. They're expounding the word of God, the Old Testament that they specifically are referring to. Because you think about this. I don't know how familiar you all are with Daniel, the book of Daniel. Sometimes we reform people like the first part of Daniel, and we don't like the second part of Daniel because it gets really wacky sometimes with what some people do with it. But you know, in Daniel chapter 7, starting at verse 14, Daniel has a vision. And his vision is this. He sees the Ancient of Days sitting on a throne and someone like a son of man coming to the Ancient of Days. And the Ancient of Days is clearly God. Right? Clearly Yahweh here we're talking about. In the Ancient of Days is God. He's got white hair like God and someone's sitting on a throne. And someone like a son of man comes riding on the clouds of heaven and comes up to the Ancient of Days and receives from the Ancient of Days a kingdom and a dominion and absolute power and authority over all the nations. And so what's clearly being presented in Daniel 7 is two divine figures. The Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. And both ruling. And you know what's fascinating is with the recent discovery of the Qumran scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and all of the ancient commentaries from before the time of Jesus that have been discovered on the book of Daniel, is what's interesting is scholars, when they go back and look at these ancient commentaries, what they find out is that these Old Testament, these intertestamental Jewish people who were studying the book of Daniel, had no earthly idea what was going on in this passage. It was a mystery to them in the modern sense. It was hidden from them. They didn't know what was going on. And in, if, if you read the commentaries, it's fascinating because they just, they just gloss over it and they just say, this is a difficult text. We don't really know who the Son of Man is. This is really weird. And what's fascinating is when Jesus comes onto the scene, just a few hundred years later after these commentaries are being written. Jesus steps onto the scene 
And he's like, hey, don't, don't call me the Messiah. If, he, if you recognize I'm the Messiah, great. But keep that under wraps. And remember, he told his disciples not to tell people he was the Messiah because there were so many connotations with who the Messiah was and what he would do that were misunderstandings and so on. But Jesus had a different term, not Messiah, a different term that he really liked to use for himself. Anyone know what that is? Son of man. Yeah, that's right, the Son of Man. Now, what's Jesus doing there? He is revealing the mystery of Daniel 7 that was hidden for hundreds of years. No one knew what to do with that text. No one knew what to do with that prophecy. But Jesus himself came and said, Hey, I am the Son of Man, and I will come riding on the clouds of heaven and receive a kingdom from my Father. He revealed that mystery. And then he sent his disciples to continue to expound the word and reveal that mystery to everybody else. And that's what Paul is saying that he's doing. He's taking this mystery that's now fully revealed and bringing it to God's people, drawing God's elect from all nations and tongues. Because only people with eyes to see can see this. And Paul's job is to be the means to bring all this about for God's people. This is the reason why he is enduring all of this suffering. It's not fun. But this is his mission. And in fact, look at the next couple of verses here, verse 28. Him, that is Jesus, this mystery, that now revealed, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. Paul's telling us, this is why I'm doing this. To reveal this mystery. It's been hidden for so long. But now it's being fully revealed. People are going to come to know Christ. This is my job. That's why he's, he, that's why he's going through this suffering. And in verse, in verse 28, he's saying that he is warning and teaching everyone with wisdom so that we might present everyone mature in Christ. In other words, here's a purpose Paul's purpose, another purpose for why he's doing it. He's doing it just for the sake of telling people about Jesus. But what he thinks needs to happen for people who hear the message of the gospel and for people who hear the word of God fully expounded to them is they need to progress in their spiritual maturity. In other words, Paul is not interested. Well, he is interested, but he doesn't want this to be the end goal. He doesn't want baby Christians. He wants Christians who are growing in their knowledge of God. Why am I expounding the gospel, he says? It's because I am teaching and warning everyone with wisdom so that they might be presented mature. I had a conversation with somebody once who said, you know what, I just, I like to be a simple Christian. You know, I just, I don't think I need to study the Bible that much. I don't think I need to read any Christian books. I don't really need to go to Sunday school uh, I just I just like the basics of Christianity. Just as, as long as I can know that God loves me and that I'm going to spend eternity with him because I believe in Jesus, that's good enough for me. I don't need anything more than that. And I told this person a little story, or a little uh, illustration, really, not really a story, but an illustration. And I said, okay, just imagine, this particular person was a woman, and I said, okay, you know what? Just imagine you're on a date with somebody. Imagine you're on a date. Right? And you sit across the table at Applebee's from this person, 
And this man on the other side, I just made up Applebee's, I don't know why. And this person on the other side, this man, all right, says to you, hey, you know what? I really am glad that we're going to be in this relationship together. Right? I appreciate that. This is going to work for me. But I just got to tell you, I want this to be a simple relationship. I don't want to know anything about your family. I don't want to know anything about what school you're going to. I don't care what your calling is in this life. I don't care what your hobbies or interests are. I don't care who your friends are. I really just don't want to know that much about you. I just care that you love me and that we're going to be with each other forever. How many of you think that relationship would go really well? I don't see any hands. I'm assuming it's because you don't think it would go well, not just because you're Presbyterians and you don't raise your hands. Uh, Yeah, that's right. It wouldn't go well at all. That would be a horrible relationship. It would not work. It would be short-lived. In fact, if you were the man in that situation, you'd probably get slapped, right? It would not be good. And we know that that wouldn't work in a relationship. But frankly, there are so many Christians who treat their Christian faith that way. God, I, I don't really care about theology. I don't care about studying you. I don't care about what your word says or knowing the history of the Bible or knowing what your uh, apostle Paul says in this chapter or whatever. I just don't care. I don't need to know you that well. All I care about is the fact that I have fire insurance. All I care about is the fact that you love me and that by believing in Jesus, I'm going to be saved and live with you in eternity. That is not what the scripture calls us to. Paul says that the result of of being present when the word of God is being presented and when it's being fully expounded, that ought to create maturity in believers. That is what should happen. And Paul says, for this, for the purpose of presenting the gospel and presenting the word and suffering to do it, for this I toil. I toil so that you may be mature in your faith, so you may... Be mature in your knowledge of God. There's a certain sense in which those of us who are in ministry or preparing for ministry are doing precisely what Paul is doing. Or This is our same passion. This is my passion. This is one of my soapboxes is to say, Christians, be mature in your knowledge of God. You probably can't tell that I care about this, but I do. Uh, This is one of my passions in life is to study the things of God so that I can teach them to God's people and help them mature in their faith. That is really... Exactly what I'm doing is what Paul's doing here. For this I toil. This is what Pastor Adam does. This is what all of us who are in ministry do. Hopefully. We want this. We want this. For this I toil, Paul says, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. Now it's not just ministers or people in ministry that are called to be doing this. We're all supposed to emulate what Paul is teaching us here. This should be something all of us Christians are doing. Because guess what? Even if you're not a pastor or a Sunday school teacher, you are still called to study the things of God, to mature yourself, both for your own personal spiritual benefit in improving and growing the knowledge of God in you and your relationship with God, but also to prepare yourself to teach others. Maybe not in a formal sense like what I'm doing right now, but you're certainly going to teach your kids. You certainly need to be ready to give an answer for the hope that's within you to anyone who asks you. There's so much, so many reasons to seek this maturity and understanding the gospel 
and the whole word of God as it is brought forth. If Paul thought this was important, I think we need to think this is important. And I assume, I assume that's why you're here this morning, right? To hear the word of God and to grow in your knowledge. This is why you come to church, to hear the word of God and grow in your knowledge and to worship him. So let's remember why we're doing this and what the end goal is. It's to be mature in our understanding of the things of God and in our hope of the glory of the gospel in Christ in us and this mystery revealed. All right, let's uh, close in prayer here. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you make it so clear to us through the words of Paul what you want us to do. Lord, not only do you make it clear what you want us to do, to to grow in our knowledge of you, to study your word, to hear the teaching of those whom you've raised up to teach your word, but Lord, also you've made it so clear in your word what you have done, and perhaps most importantly, what you have done. Namely, that you have died for us and have lived the perfect life we couldn't live so that we might be holy and blameless before you through faith. Lord, we thank you that your death is sufficient It is sufficient for us. We don't need to add anything to it. Lord, thank you for that security that we have in your gospel. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen that faith in us through the working of your spirit, particularly as as we all study your word and hear it this morning. Pray, Lord, that you would bless Dr. Hayes as we come together in worship and as he brings the word. Lord, I pray that you would change us through that and prepare us now to worship your holy name. In the holy and precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.